Chapter Three of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three The Lust of Hate. The cab horse was a fine animal, spun along to such good purpose that when I turned from Waterloo Place into Pall Mall, I had, contrary to my expectations, still some few minutes to spare now that the actual moment for putting into effect the threats i had so often uttered against the man who had wronged me so cruelly had arrived strange to say i was seized with a sudden and inexplicable feeling of compassion for him badly as he had injured me and desirous as i was of repaying him for his treachery i discovered i could not bring myself to do what i had arranged without reluctance if it had been a matter of fair fighting with the certainty of no one interfering between us it would have been a totally different matter and i would have gone into it with a light heart but now to decoy him to his death by the aid of nicholas science was an act of cowardice at which my whole nature revolted feeling half inclined to put off if not for ever at least for that evening the dastardly deed i had arranged for me I drove slowly down the street, quite unable to resist the temptation of seeing the man whom, if I wished to do so, I could kill so easily. In the event of his hailing me, as had been arranged, I would reply that I was engaged and leave him to find another vehicle, unconscious of the narrowness of his escape. At any cost, I would not let him set foot in my conveyance. While I was thus arguing with myself, I was drawing closer and closer to the monolith club. Already I could discern the stalwart form of the commissionaire standing upon the steps under the great lamp. At the moment that I approached, two men left the building arm in arm, but neither of them was the man I wanted. Little by little their steps died away in the distance, and so nicely had I timed my arrival that the clock at the palace ahead chimed the half hour exactly as I came opposite the steps. At the same instant, the doors of the club opened, and Bartrand and another man, whom I recognised instantly as Nicola, came out. The mere sight of the man I hated shattered all my plans in an instant. In the presence of the extraordinary individual accompanying him, I had not sufficient pluck to cry, engaged. So when the commissioner hailed me, there was nothing for it but to drive across the road and pull up alongside the pavement as we had previously arranged. "'You're in luck's way, Bartrand,' cried Nicola, glancing at my horse, which was tossing his head, pawing the ground as if eager to be off again. "'That's a rare good nag of yours, cabby. He's worth an extra fare.' I grunted something in reply. I cannot remember what. The mere sight of Bartrand standing there on the pavement, scanning the horse, had roused all my antipathy, and, as I have said, my good resolves were cast of the winds, like so much chaff. Well, for the present, au revoir, my dear fellow, said Nicola, shaking hands with his victim. I will meet you at the house in half an hour. If you care about it, you can have your revenge then. Now you'd better get going. 28 Saxborough Street, cabby, and don't be too long about it. I touched my hat and opened the apron for Bartrand to step inside. When he had done so, he ordered me to lower the glass and not be long in getting him to this destination, or I'd hear of it at the other end. He little thought how literally 
I might interpret the command. Leaving Nicola standing on the pavement looking after us, I shook up my horse and drove rapidly down the street. My whole body was tingling with exultation, but that it would have attracted attention and spoiled my revenge, I felt I could have shouted my joy aloud. Here I was with the enemy in my power. By lifting the shutter in the roof of the cab, I could see him lolling inside, thinking doubtless of his wealth, and little dreaming how close he was to the poor fellow he had wronged so cruelly. The knowledge that by simply pressing the spring under my hand I could destroy him in five seconds, and then, choosing a quiet street, could tip him out and be done with him forever. It intoxicated me like the finest wine. No one would suspect him on Nicola, and Nicola, for his own sake, would never betray me. While I was thinking in this fashion, and my gloating over what I was about to do, I allowed my horse to dawdle a little. Instantly an umbrella was thrust up through the shutter, and I was ordered in the devil's name to drive faster. Ah, my fine fellow, I said to myself, you little know how near you are to the master by whom you swear. Wait a few moments until I have a little more pleasure of your company, and then we'll see what I can do for you. On reaching Piccadilly, I turned west, and for some distance followed the proper route for Saxborough Street. All the time I was thinking, thinking, and thinking of what I was about to do. He was at my mercy. Any instant I could make him a dead man, and the cream of the jest was that he did not know it. My fingers played with the fatal knob, and once I almost pressed it. The touch of the cold steel sent a thrill through me, and at the same instant one of the most extraordinary events of my life occurred. I am almost chary of relating it, lest my readers may feel inclined to believe that I am endeavouring to gull them with the impossible. But even at the risk of that happening, I must tell my story as it occurred to me. As I put my hand for the last time upon the knob, there rose before my eyes, out of the half-dark, a woman's face, and looked at me. First I could scarcely believe my own eyes. I rubbed them, and looked again. It was still there, apparently hanging in mid-air above the horse I was driving. It was not, if one may judge by the photographs of famous beauties, a perfect face, but there was that in it that made it to me the most captivating I had ever seen in my life. I refer to the expression of gentleness and womanly goodness that animated it. The contour of the face was oval, the mouth small and well-shaped, and the eyes large, true and unflinching. Though it only appeared before me for a few seconds, I had time to take thorough stock of it, and to remember every feature. It seemed to be looking straight at me, and the mouth to be saying as plainly as any other words could speak, Think of what you are doing, Gilbert Pennethorne. Remember the shame of it, and be true to yourself. Then she faded away, and as she went, a veil that had been covering my eyes for months seemed now to drop from them, and I saw myself for what I really was, a coward and a would-be murderer. We were then passing down a side street, in which fortunately for what I was about to do, there was not a single person of any sort to be seen. Happen what might, I would now stop the cab, and tell the man inside who I was, and with what purpose I had picked him up. Then he should go free, and in letting him understand that I had spared his life, I would have had my revenge. 
with this intention i pulled my horse up and unwrapping my rug from my knees descended from my perch i had drawn up the glass before dismounting the better to be able to talk to him mr bartrand i said when i had reached the pavement at the same time pulling off my false beard and my sou'wester this business has gone far enough and i am now going to tell you who i am and what i wanted with you do you know me either he was asleep or he was too surprised at seeing me before him to speak at any rate he offered no reply to my question mr bartrand i began again i ask if you are aware of who i am still no answer was vouchsafed to me and immediately an overwhelming fear took possession of me i sprang upon the step and tore open the apron what i saw inside made me recoil with terror in the corner his head was thrown back and his whole body rigid though the unfortunate man i had first determined to kill but had since decided to spare i ran my hands all trembling with terror over his body the man was dead and i had killed him by some mischance i must have pressed the spring which opened the valve and thus the awful result had been achieved though years had elapsed since it happened i can feel the agony of that moment as plainly now as if it were but yesterday when i understood that the man was really dead and that i was his murderer branded henceforth with the mark of cain i sat down on the pavement in a cold sweat of terror trembling in every limb the face of the whole world had changed within the past few minutes now i knew i could never be like other men again already the fatal noose was tightening around my neck while these thoughts were racing through my brain my ears now prenaturally sharp had detected the ring of a footstep on the pavement a hundred yards or so away instantly i sprang to my feet my mind alert and nimble my whole body instinct in a thought of self-preservation whatever happened i must not be caught red-handed with the body of a murdered man in my possession at any risk i must rid myself of that and speedily too climbing into my perch again i started my horse off at a rapid pace in the same direction in which i had been proceeding when i had made my awful discovery on reaching the first crossroads i branched off to the right and discovering that to be a busy thoroughfare turned to the left again never before had my fellow man inspired me with such terror at last i found a deserted street i was in the act of pressing the lever with my foot when a door in a house just ahead of me opened and a party of ladies and gentlemen issued from it some went in one direction others in the contrary and i was between both to drop the body where they could see it be worse than madness so almost cursing them for interrupting me I lashed my horse and darted round the first available corner. Once more I found a quiet place, but this time was interrupted by a cab turning into the street and coming along behind me. The third time, however, was more successful. I looked carefully about me. The street was empty in front and behind. On either side were rows of respectable middle-class houses, with never a light in the window or a policeman to be seen. Trembling like a leaf, I stopped the cab and when i had made sure there was no one looking placed my foot upon the lever so perfect was the mechanism that it acted instantly and what was better still without noise next moment bartram was lying upon his back in the centre of the road as soon as his weight released it the bottom of the vehicle rose and i heard the spring click as it took its place again before it drove on 
i turned and looked at him where he lay so still and cold on the pure white snow and thought of the day at Markapuli when he had turned me off the station for wanting to doctor poor ben garman and also the morning when i had denounced him to the miners on the bugler range after i had discovered that he had stolen my secret and appropriated my wealth how little either of us thought then what the end of our hatred was to be if i had been told on the first day we had met that i should murder him and that he would ultimately be found lying dead in the centre of a london street i very much doubt if either of us would have believed it possible but how horribly true it was as to what i was now there could be no question the ghastly verdict was self-evident and the word ran in my brain with a significance i had never imagined it to possess before it seemed to be written upon the houses to be printed upon the snow-curdled sky even the roll of the wheels beneath me proclaimed me a murderer until that time i had no real conception of what that grisly word meant now i knew it for the most awful in the whole range of our english language all this time i have been driving aimlessly on and on having no care to where i went conscious only that i must put as great a distance as possible between myself and the damning evidence of my crime then a reaction set in and i became aware that to continue driving in this half coherent fashion was neither politic nor sensible so i pulled myself together and tried to think what i'd better do the question for my consideration was whether i should hasten to hogarth square as arranged and hand the cab over to nicola or whether i should endeavour to dispose of it in some other way and not go near that dreadful man again one thing was indisputable whatever i did i must do quickly it was nearly one o'clock by this time and if i wanted to see him at the rendezvous i must hurry or he would have gone before i reached it in that case what shall i do with the cab after anxious thought i came to the conclusion that i would better find him and hand him his terrible property then if i wished to give him the slip i could lead him to suppose i intended returning to my hotel and afterwards act as i might deem best for my own safety this once decided i turned the vehicle round whipped up the horse and set off for hogarth square as fast as i could go it was a long journey for several times i missed my way and had to retrace my steps but at last i accomplished it and drove into the square sure enough at the second lamp post on the left hand side where he had appointed to meet me three men were standing beside a handsome cab and from the way they peered about it was evident they were anxiously awaiting the arrival of someone one i could see at first glance was nicola the other was probably his chinese servant the man who had brought me the cab earlier in the evening the third's identity i could not guess nor did i waste time trying as i approached them nicola held up his hand as a signal for me to stop well i immediately pulled up and got down not a question did he ask about my success or otherwise but took from the second cab a bowler hat and a top coat which i recognised as the garments i had left at levi solomon's that evening put these on he said and then you can come with me as quickly as you can i have a lot to say to you i did as he ordered me and when my sou'wester and cape had been tossed into the empty cab he beckoned me to follow him down the square his servant had meanwhile driven that awful cab away 
Then what have you to tell me? he asked, when we had walked a little distance along the pavement. I stopped and faced him with a face I'll be bound as ashen as that of a corpse. I have done your fiendish bidding, I hissed. I am, God help me, unintentionally what you have made me, a murderer. The man is dead, is he? replied Nicola with icy calmness. That is satisfactory. Now we have to divert suspicion from yourself. All things considered, I think you'd better go straight back to your hotel and keep quiet there until I communicate with you. You need have no fear as to your safety. No one will suspect you. Hitherto we have been most successful in eluding detection. As he spoke, the memory of the other murderers, which had shocked all London, flashed through my brain. And instantly I realised everything. The victims, so the medical men stated, had in each case been killed by some anaesthetic. They had been found in the centre of the road, as if dropped from a vehicle, while their faces had all been mutilated in the same uncanny fashion. And I turned and looked at the man by my side, and then, in an unaccountable fit of rage, threw myself upon him. The men who actually did the deeds were innocent. Here was the real murderer, the man who had instigated and egged them on to crime. He had led my soul into hell, but he should not escape scot-free. The suddenness of my passion took him completely by surprise, but only for an instant. Then, with a quick movement of his hands, he caught my wrists and held me in a grip of iron. I was disarmed and powerless, and he knew it, and laughed mockingly. So you would try to add me to your list, would you, Mr. Gilbert Pennethorne? Be thankful that I am mercifully inclined and do not punish you as you deserve. Without another word, he threw me from him with the ease of a practised wrestler, and I fell upon the pavement as if I had been shot. The shock brought me to my senses, and I rose an altogether different man, though still hating him with a tenfold loathing as the cause of all my misery. Having once rid himself of me, however, he seemed to think no more of the matter. Now be off to your hotel, he said sharply, and don't stir from it until I communicate with you. By making this fuss, you may have hung yourself, to say nothing of implicating me. Tomorrow morning, I will let you know what is best to be done. In the meantime, remain indoors, feign ill health, and don't see any strangers on any pretext whatever. He stood at the corner of the square and watched me till I had turned the corner, as cool and diabolical a figure as the author of all evil himself. I only looked back once, and then walked briskly on until I reached Piccadilly Circus, where I halted and gazed about me in a sort of dim, confused wonderment at my position. What a variety of events had occurred since the previous night, when I had stood in the same place, and heard the policeman's whistle sound from Jermyn Street, in proclamation of the second mysterious murder. How little I had then thought that within twenty-four hours I should be in the same peril as the murderer of the man I had seen lying under the light of the policeman's lantern. Perhaps even at this moment Bartrand's body had been discovered, and a hue and cry was on foot for the man who had done the deed. With this thought in my mind, a greater terror than I had yet felt came over me, and I set off as hard as I could to go down a by-street into Trafalgar Square, thence by way of Northumberland Avenue on to the embankment. Once there, I leant upon the coping, and looked down at the dark water slipping along so silently on its way to the sea. It was my chance, if only I had the pluck to avail myself of it. Life had now no hope left for me. Why should I not throw myself over, and so escape the fate 
that must inevitably await me if I lived. One moment's courage, a little struggling in the icy water, a last choking cry, and then it would be all over and done with, and those who had the misfortune to call themselves my kinsmen would be spared the mortification of seeing me standing in a felon's dock. I craned my neck still further over the side and looked at the blocks of ice as they went by, knocking against each other with a faint musical sound that sounded like the tinkling of tiny bells. I remembered the depth of the river, pictured my sodden body, stranded onto the mud by the ebbing tide somewhere near the sea. I could fancy the conjectures that would be made concerning it. Would anyone connect me with? But there I could not go on. Nor could I do what I had proposed. Desperate as was my case, I found I still clung to life with a tenacity that even crime itself could not lessen. No, by hook or crook I must get out of England to some place where nobody would know me, and where I could begin a new life. By cunning it could surely be managed. But in that case I knew I must not go back to my hotel and run the risk of seeing Nicola again. I distrusted his powers of saving me, and if I fell once more under his influence, goodness alone know what I might not be made to do. No, I would make some excuse to the landlord to account for my absence, and then creep quietly out of England in such a way that no one would suspect me. But how was it to be managed? To remain in London would be to run endless risks. Anyone might recognise me, and then capture would be inevitable. I turned out my pockets and counted my money. Fortunately, I had cashed a cheque only the day before, and now had nearly forty pounds in notes and gold in my purse. Not very much, it is true, but amply sufficient for my present needs. The question was, where should I go? Australia? United States? South America? South Africa? Which of these places would be safest? The first and second I rejected without consideration. The first I had tried, the second I had no desire to visit. Chile? The Argentine? Or Bechuana land? It all depended on the boats. To whichever place the vessel sailed first, to that place I would go. Casting one last glance at the ice-bound water below me, and with a shudder at the thought of what I had contemplated doing when I first arrived upon the embankment, I made my way back to the strand. It was now close upon three o'clock, and already a few people were abroad. If I were not out of London within a few hours, I might be caught. I would go directly. I had decided what it was imperative I should know. Up one street and down another, I toiled until at last I came upon what I wanted. A small restaurant in a back street devoted to the interests of the early arrivals at Covent Garden Market. It's only a tiny place, shabby in the extreme, but just suited to my purpose. I walked boldly in and ordered a cup of cocoa and a plate of sausages. While they were being prepared, I seated myself in one of the small compartments along the opposite wall, and with my head upon my hands tried to think coherently. When the proprietor brought me the food, I asked him if he could oblige me with a loan of writing materials. He glanced at me rather queerly, I thought, but did not hesitate to do what I asked. When he had gone again, I dipped the pen into the ink and wrote a note to the proprietor of my hotel, telling him that I had been suddenly taken out of town by important business, and asking him to forward my boxes within a week to the cloakroom, Aberdeen Railway Station, labelled to be called for. I chose Aberdeen for the reason that it was a long distance from London, 
but also because it struck me that if inquiries were made by the police it would draw attention of my real route which would certainly not be in that direction i then wrote a cheque for the amount of my account enclosed it and having done so sealed up the letter and put it in my pocket on an adjoining table i espied a newspaper which i made haste to secure turning to the column where the shipping advertisements were displayed i searched the list for a vessel outward bound to one of the ports i had chosen i discovered that to chile or any of the south american republics there would not be a boat sailing for at least a week to come when i turned to south africa i was more fortunate a craft named the fuji princess was advertised to sail from southampton for cape town at eleven a m on this self-same day she was a four thousand tons burden but had only accommodation for ten first-class passengers and fifty in the steerage what pleased me better still she would only call at tenerife on the way the steerage fare was fifteen pounds and it was by this class i determined to travel my mind once made up the next thing to decide was how to reach southampton without incurring suspicion to catch the boat this could only be done by rail and to further increase my store of knowledge i had again to borrow from the proprietor of the restaurant from the timetable he lent me i found that a train left waterloo every morning at six o'clock which would get me to the docks before nine o'clock thus allowing me two full hours in which to make my preparations and to get on board in comfortable time that is supposing she sailed at the hour stated but i had still three hours to put in london before the train would start and how to occupy them without running any risk i could not tell it was quite impossible for me to remain where i was and yet to go out and walk about the streets would be dangerous in the extreme in that time nikola might get hold of me again and i believe i dreaded that more than even falling into the clutches of the law suddenly i was struck by what seemed a splendid idea what if i walked out of london to some station along the line where the train would pick me up in that case no one would be able to remember seeing me start from waterloo and i should be believed to be still in london the thought was no sooner born in my brain than i picked up my hat and prepared to be off when i paid at the counter for my meal and also for the note paper with which the proprietor had obliged me i strode out of the restaurant and down the street to the strand again surbiton i reflected was twelve miles from waterloo and besides being quiet it was also one of the places at which i had noticed that the train was advertised to call i had almost three hours before me in which to do the distance and if i walked at the rate of five miles an hour it was evident that i should accomplish it with ease to surbiton therefore i would go having made my way back to charing cross i passed down whitehall and over westminster bridge to the lambeth palace road under the influence of my new excitement i felt easier in my mind than i had been since i made my awful discovery three hours before but still not easy enough to be able to pass a policeman without a shudder strangely enough considering that i had had no sleep at all had been moving about all night i was not conscious of the least fatigue but strode along the pavement at a swinging pace probably doing more than i had intended when i had first set out the snow had ceased but a nasty fog was rising from the river to take its place i pictured the state of london when day should break and devoutly thanked heaven that i should be well out of it by that time i could imagine the newsboys running about the streets with a cry of 
another horrible murder a millionaire a victim i seemed to see the boards struck before the shop doors with the same ghastly headline and i could realize the consternation of the town when it awoke to find the mysterious assassin still at work in its midst then would follow the inquest the porter at the monolith club would be called upon to give evidence would affirm that he had seen the deceased gentleman step into a smart hansom driven by a cabman dressed in an oilskin cape and a sou'wester and would probably remember having noticed that the cabby was a gruff fellow with a bushy black beard the next witnesses would be the finders of the body and after that the same verdict would be returned wilful murder against some person or persons unknown as had been given in the previous cases if only nikola remained faithful to me i should probably have time to get out of england before the police could stop me and once among the miners of the rand i should be able to arrange matters in such a way that recognition would be almost an impossibility with a sigh of relief at this comfortable thought i pushed on a little faster along the wandsworth road until i reached clapham junction station as i did so i looked at my watch it was just a quarter to four and already the footpaths were becoming dotted with pedestrians leaving clapham junction behind me i passed along lavender hill road through wandsworth struck out along the road to west hill then across putney heath through kingston vale and so into kingston from that quaint old riverside town to surbiton is but a step and exactly as the church clocks in the latter place were chiming a quarter to six i stood on the platform of the railway station prepared to board my train when it should come in sight the last four miles had been done at a fast pace by the time i had taken my ticket i was completely worn out my anxiety was so keen that i could not sit down but waited until i should be safely on board the train the cries of the newsboys now singing to be ringing in my ears another horrible murder discovery of the body of a famous millionaire to while away the time i went out of the station again and explored the deserted streets passing houses in which the owners still lay fast asleep little dreaming of the miserable man who was tramping along in the cold outside a biting north wind blew over the snow and chilled me to the marrow the leaden hand of despair was pressing hard upon my heart and when i looked at the rows of trim matter-of-fact residences on either side of me and thought of the gulf that separated their inmates from myself i groaned aloud in abject misery at five minutes to the hour i returned to the station and just as i reached it punctual almost to the tick of the clock the train made its appearance round the bend of the line with the solitary exception of an old man i was the only one passenger from this station and as soon as i had discovered an empty third-class compartment i got in and stowed myself away in a corner almost before the train was out of the station i was fast asleep dreaming of nikola and of the horrible events of the night just passed once more i drove the cab along snow-covered streets once more that strange woman's face rose before me in warning and once more i descended from my seat to make the horrible discovery that my enemy was dead in my agony i must have shrieked aloud for the noise i made woke me up an elderly man possibly a successful country butcher from his appearance who might have got in at some station we had stopped at while i slept was sitting in the corner opposite watching me you have been having a pretty bad nightmare these last few minutes i should say mister he observed with a smile i was just going to give you a shake when you woke up yourself by screaming out like that 
an awful fear came over me was it possible that in my sleep i had revealed my secret i'm sorry to have disturbed you i said faintly but i am subject to bad dreams have i been talking very much no not so far as i have heard he answered but you've been moaning and groaning as if you'd got something on your mind that you wanted to tell pretty bad i've just got over a severe illness i replied relieved beyond measure to hear that i had kept my dreadful secret to myself and i suppose that accounts for the uneasy way in which i sleep my companion looked at me rather searchingly for a few seconds and then began to fumble in his great coat pocket for something presently he produced a large spirit flask let me give you a drop of whisky he said kindly it will cheer you up and you look as if you want it right down bad he poured about half a wineful glass into the little nickel-plated cup that fitted the bottom of the flask and handed it to me i thanked him sincerely and tossed it off at one gulp it was neat spirit and ran through my veins like so much fire though it burnt my throat pretty severely it did me a world of good and in a few moments i was sufficiently recovered to talk reasonably enough at nine o'clock almost to the minute we drew up at southampton docks then bidding my fellow passenger good morning i quickly quitted the station before i left london i had carefully noted the address of the steamship company's agents and having ascertained the direction of their office i made my way towards it early as was the hour i found it open and upon being interrogated by the clerk behind the counter stated my desire to book as a steerage passenger for cape town by the steamer fiji princess which they advertised as leaving the docks that day. Clark looked at me with some surprise when I said steerage, but whatever he may have thought, he offered no comment upon it. What is your name? he inquired, dipping in his pen in the ink. I had anticipated this question and replied, George Rexford, as promptly as if it had really been my patronomic. Having paid the amount demanded and received my ticket in exchange, I asked what time it would be necessary for him to be on board. Half past ten without fail, he answered. She would cast off punctually at eleven. Well, I'll give you fair warning. Captain Hawkins does not wait for anything or anybody. I thanked him for his courtesy and left the office, buttoning up my ticket in my pocket as I went down the steps. In four hours at most, all being well, I should be safely out of England, and for a little while a free man. By half past nine I had purchased a small outfit, and also the few odds and ends such as bedding and mess utensils that I should require on this voyage. This done I hunted about till I found a small restaurant, again in a back street, which I entered and ordered breakfast. As soon as I smelt the cooking I found that I was ravenous, and twice I had to call for more before my hunger was appeased. At the end of the meal the paper boy put in an appearance and my heart well nigh stopped. When I heard the girl beyond the counter inquire if there was any startling news this morning. Another terrible murder in London, answered the lad with fiendish glibness, and as he spoke my overtaxed strength gave way and I fell back in my chair in a dead faint. I suppose for a few moments I must have quite lost consciousness, for I can recollect nothing till I opened my eyes and found a small crowd collected round me, somebody sponging my forehead and two people chafing my hands. How do you feel now? inquired the nervous little man who had first come to my assistance. Better, thank you, I replied, at the same time endeavouring to sit up. Very much better. What's been the matter with me? A bit of a faint, that's all, another answered. Are you subject to them? 
I have been very ill lately, I said, giving the same reply as I had done to the man in the train, and I suppose I overtaxed my strength a little this morning. But thanks to your kindness, I feel ever so much better now. As soon as I had recovered sufficiently, I paid my bill, and having again sincerely thanked those who had assisted me, left the shop and hurried off to the docks as fast as I could go. It was now some few minutes after ten o'clock. The Fiji Princess was a fair-sized vessel of an old-fashioned type, and very heavily laden. Indeed, so heavy was she that she looked almost unsafe beside the great American liner near which she was berthed. Having clambered on board, I inquired my way to the steerage quarters, which were forward, and then stowed away my things and endeavoured to make myself as comfortable as circumstances would permit in the place which was to be my home for the next five weeks or so. For prudence sake, I remained below until I heard the whistle sound. I could tell by the shaking that the steamship was moving. Then, when I had satisfied myself that we were really under way, I climbed the gangway that led to the deck and looked about me. Slowly as we were moving, we were already a hundred yards from the wharf side, and in a few minutes would be well out in Southampton water. Right after, a small crowd of passengers were grouped at the stern railings, waving their handkerchiefs and hats to a similar group ashore. Forward, we were less demonstrative, for as I soon discovered, the steerage passengers consisted only of myself, a circumstance which you may be very sure I did not by any means regret. By midday we were in the Solent, and by lunchtime the Isle of Wight lay over our taffrail. Now, unless I was stopped at Tenerife, I was certain of a month's respite from the law, and when I realised this I went to my berth, and sinner as I was, knelt down and offered up the heartiest prayer of gratitude I have ever in my life given utterance to. End of chapter 3